Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome everyone to Once a DJ. I'm here today with B-Boy, DJ, promoter, chemist, marketer, entrepreneur. There's not much this guy's not done. It's a pleasure to welcome Mr. Brian Rorschenbach, aka DJ Nostalgia B. Brian, how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good, man. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on here. Um, and I'd love to just get straight into it, really, to find out basically your backstory and where it all began for you, where you found music and DJing. Yeah, um, well, I was a, a military brat. My, my father was in the army, so I grew up sort of living abroad uh, a couple different times was in Germany uh, collectively for about eight years. And so I think uh, that was around the formative years where I uh, tapped into music and it was in the early 80s. So what age would you have been then? Uh, probably around 12. And what sort of music was it? What What was it that, that inspired you? Uh, well, I think, you know, back then we were just going to like teen, um, teen parties. And so uh, the music was still very... Uh, end of disco era ish um and hip-hop hadn't really arrived in germany in like 82 um what sort of disco were you getting in germany was it more of the like synth um this kind of synth stuff like the marauder and things like that and the high energy yeah no it wasn't it wasn't as eclectic as that it was more stuff that was playing basically in a disco text that were mainstream so discos that might have been feeding um uh, military uh personnel and so it was like you know lips and funky town and it was just more yeah. mainstream hits that we were listening to so what is the setup for being in the army and living abroad um well you've got uh basically very limited exposure ev everywhere you can imagine so when we're watching tv we're watching silver spoons from three months ago when we're listening to music it's only what's in the the, the px or the post exchange so that's our, our one area where we're able to transact and buy music unless you went downtown and were, you know, getting exposed to maybe some German, uh, uh, German electro or, you know, some, some early stuff, but that, that wasn't the case until hip hop came and, and people were bringing tapes over from the States <clears throat> and exposing us to that music. And it, it was, a lot of it was just, um, you know, one song or two songs recorded on a cassette tape over and over and over again. Um, so that you could play it in your boombox, and so it what we weren't listening to you know full albums or LPs. It was like literally like oh this is uh, Ben Bada Planet Rock and it's recorded ten times on this side of the tape and the other side of the tape is Nucleus GM on it and it's recorded ten times and you just listen to the same same two songs until 
someone brought another cassette tape over from from overseas. So what was the experience like of hearing that sort of electro stuff for the first time, particularly if you're going from things like Funky Town um, and quite sort of safe disco to something that's really edgy and real sort of counterculture? I mean, it, it literally felt like that. It felt like, oh, this music isn't for everyone. And, you know, I was in the uh, community centers or the, the teen center is what they, they called it overseas. And we, you know, I, I remember a kid, he probably was coming from the East Coast and he was breakdancing. And we all just were like, what the hell is this? And how do we learn how to do this? And of course, we went to the teen center every single day after school. So your exposure level went really high versus someone that might have just been practicing in their in their living room at home or something. So we had like a collective of like 30 people trying to figure out how to do a backspin. It's, this is like in one of the other conversations I've had where people have, they, they've just got to like um, unpick something that's really, you just get like a, a little flash of it. Uh-huh. And from that, you've got to try and unpick this entire movement and this entire art form, be it breaking, be it DJing, whatever it is. Um, so what was it like? So, so did you have like a, a sort of a crew effectively yeah we had a crew without a name you know we we uh, i remember someone came over with some uh some fat laces and we were like what in the hell are those and where did you get those and so of course then we went you know pumas were maybe eight dollars at the time or if even that and so then everyone went down downtown to go get some pumas and uh we didn't have access to the fat laces you had to get those in new york or somewhere and so we were just double lacing our shoes, anything to make it kind of look like the other guy's thing. And then, you know, the, we had, we had crews, but we, we just danced t- together. We didn't really battle at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was more showcase. So like we eventually went down and I, I would say maybe my first job ever in life was, was be boying in front of the train station in Wurzburg, Germany, you know, circa 82, 83. But we were, you know, we had cardboard because we had seen cardboard. We didn't have linoleum, nothing fancy, but we were just in front of the train station trying to get some money so that we could pay for more batteries for our boombox and maybe a cassette tape, you know, by the end of the week or whatever. Yeah. So you're just really driven by the love for it then. Yeah. Yeah. So once you heard hip hop, were you just like a hundred percent hip hop? This is it. Or were you still listening out for, for other types of music? I mean, again, that uh, hip hop was like not really defined as hip hop. And so it was, it was literally like electro, uh, to me. And, um, I just leaned in really hard to that. And I, I think that that's also sort of what, um, made me a little bit of a different hip hop head, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, I had discovered drum and bass and it had that same energy again, where I felt like it was different. It was not, you know, mainstream Beastie Boys run DMC era type stuff. And I just leaned into it. So I like, I listened to a lot of craft work, art of noise, uh, in the early days. And, you know, uh, one of my, one of my favorite songs is like Boogie Down Bronx, like anything that had that, that, that electro feel to it, uh, was just really, really high in my interest. Did that change all when sampling came in then and people sampling more sort of funk rather than just drum machines? Yeah, I think it, for me, it was mostly, uh, exposure to radio. Right. And so like, uh, so that, uh, I then came back to the States in 85, 86, and then I was exposed to everything. You know, I saw 
the Ronald Reagan inauguration with the New York City Breakers and Rocksteady crew. And, you know, like, and then I'm listening to radio stations. And back then it wasn't uh, pre-driven formatting. You know, you could, you could tune in to three different stations and listen to freestyle, listen to uh, college radio, hip hop stations. And it was like uh, live mixes and everything. So it was, everything was there. Then it was like, then I got to choose what lane I really liked. And, you know, I was, I was on the West Coast. So that also formed a lot of my music interest. Where on the West Coast were you then? I was in Monterey, California, but living living in uh, living on the base there, Fort, Fort uh, Ord at the time, uh, before it got closed down, and then in in, in Marina and going to uh, a school called Seaside High School, and then later Monterey High School. So, what's the nearest sort of big city? Where it was about thirty minutes south of Santa Cruz, an hour and some change south of San Francisco. So, so north Northern California. Yeah. So, when did you start DJing? Um, well, we listened to, again, you know, a lot of radio influence. And so there was uh, college radio stations that uh, we were able to sit in and um, uh, play CDs at the time. And, and there was also a couple other radio stations that they were playing uh, records. Uh, there was uh, K- KZU and uh, KSPB, Pebble Beach Radio. And it's like basically a high school radio station. And uh, they'd have a, a, a Sunday Soul show and uh, a couple of hip hop shows and we would turn up there and, 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 and play records and CDs. So I started collecting a lot of wax, probably 88 era in there. So what was the, what sort of stuff then were, were you getting then? Was it all West coast stuff that you were getting? Uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the original pieces that probably, uh, entered in the collection was a lot of beastie boys, Eric B. Rakim, EPMD, uh, you know, Rodney Owen, Joe Cooley, if, if for a little bit of West coast, um, you know, we were trying to buy two short records and stuff like that, but that wasn't getting radio play. That was more, you know, just filling the bin up with, with those things. Um, a lot of freestyle. Um, so it's like Latin explosion on the, on the East coast, but freestyle was huge in our area. What, what is freestyle? Freestyle is like, uh, Trenier, Connie, um, you know, it's like the, electro meets latin right yeah it was huge on the west coast probably new jersey new york uh florida probably got a little bit of uh touch on it too so were there did there tend to be these little i say little i don't mean to be um defamatory or anything when i say that um these kind of sub movements of hip-hop that were regional because there was like um in dc there was go-go wasn't there <laughs> i guess in miami you had the miami base and things like that so it was, was it kind of like that like a regional offshoot uh regional offshoot but like uh go-go i didn't get exposed to go-go probably for 20 years after it even i it, it even was a, a music movement so the regional part there did definitely block us off i don't i don't even recall ever having a friend that listened to go-go even with people moving around um, but freestyle was, uh, you know, we, we leaned into the, like Miami base, even though I had never been to Florida, you know, the, at the time, because it was so similar to freestyle, the, the sound. And so right. there's a lot of freestyle artists that are New York native artists, um, that would come out and tour on the West coast. And we knew all of that music, uh, top down all the artists and everything because they were touring and they were doing the car shows, the car show circuit. And I was a dancer in a dance crew back then and so we would open for these concerts so we saw him much with the dance did did that was were you more dancing than djing then at the start 
Uh, yeah, I was definitely dancing a lot more in ninety to ninety three in that that time period because I was we were we were in a crew called the International Stage Kings and we were going to all the clubs in the Bay Area battling all the dance crews. And so then I got to see Cameron Paul in the early days at City Nights, you know, mixing on a reel to reel like just a lot of the early early club uh, DJs from the Bay Area, and we would just go up and down. Northern California coastline to every single club just to battle other uh, dance crews. What was battling like back then? Because I've DJed a few battles in probably about ten years ago now, mm-hmm. and and th- there's this very like standoffish thing that I've seen where I think aggression plays probably more of a part of it than I would have expected. Uh. It's a lot of kind of like puffed out chests and gesturing at each other with quite yeah. gestures that kind of I've, I've been at battles where everyone's kind of done the same gesture and then it kind of loses its impact a little bit. Yeah. But, um, was it that type of thing? No, just think like um, in the early 90s there, I mean, music changed so much, right? That like uh, breaking was, it went back underground, I would say. It didn't disappear, just sort of uh, living in its own little sort of lair, but the club scene was very much about, uh, uh, what we would call open format now, right? It was like freestyle dancing. Um, and, uh, you just went Mm -hmm. with, like, I had, I had a buddy Manny that, uh, I went clubbing with every single weekend for years and we had routines. So it wasn't the battling that is like, um, we're forming a circle, killing the, uh, killing the dance floor and, and everyone standing around us. We literally would look at the dance floor, find two other guys or two girls that were dancing really good, and then just get up in their space and then just just start hitting routines on them. And then they had they had their routines, and it was just just to get a little bit of crowd appreciation from the sidelines. And it wasn't a formal battle, but we would be like, "Oh yeah, we went up there and, and wrecked those two guys right there." We we you know that's the third time we battled, and it was literally it, it could start and finish in three minutes on the dance floor. That sounds good. That sounds really raw. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, it, it was. Uh, you know, we looked. We knew who the dancers were, and we knew what clubs they w- were going to. So we actually went looking for them just for the challenge. Was it strange coming into that after being on the airbase in Germany, where everyone's just doing it together? Was it strange going from that then to coming into a culture where you're like, oh, we're actually battling here. There's a bit, bit of something at stake, a bit of reputation. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the the army base is definitely more communal, community oriented, like all the time, and and you know a lot of that stuff still happened when I moved to California. I was you know back close to an army base, so still have that same energy. But um, I think they're just crews formed. You know, there was a lot of dance crews, and we're all friends too. Like with a lot of these regional ones, it was the ones that were outside of our area that we wanted to go see what they were doing, and and you know what kind of flavor they had up in the Bay Area because it felt like there was a lot of stuff happening there. Was it much of a different style in the Bay Area? Um, at the time, it wasn't so distinct as it is now. Um, uh, it, it was uh, definitely, they had a lot more uh, access to fashion up there because, you know, uh, Oakland was right there. I mean, anytime we could get over to Eastmont Mall in Oakland, uh, you know, we, we, we did that or, or just, just down in San Francisco itself. And so, yeah, I think they just had a better fashion footprint, probably informed a little bit of their, their dance and flavor, but, um, 
I feel like we were right up there with them. Yeah, because the reason I ask that just for any listeners that are curious is that I think the Bay Area through time has had quite distinct musical styles as well, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it's had that high fee and and I guess was some of the electro stuff a bit unique in the Bay Area? Uh, no, it was, um, I think that's where the, the whole North, Northern California, because it was, you know, such a mix of uh, cultures up there is like, you know, Beria had a lot of Filipinos and we and and uh, San Jose and Monterey, a lot of, lot of uh, Hispanics. And so like everyone just sort of meshed together. And I think car culture probably had a big play in everything that was going on uh, on the coast because it's fair weather. So you, there's car shows all the time instead of, I live up in Seattle now and we have to wait till summer to, to pull out our cars. And so, yeah. And cruising was a huge thing. I, you know, as much as we went to clubs, we went cruising every Saturday and Sunday night, uh, you know, in Salinas and Monterey. And so that was a very, very big cultural thing to do is to just get in your car, listen to music and cruise. So was that all hip hop then that you were listening to on cruises or was that more varied? um hip-hop and freestyle again yeah yeah so coming from the dancing and she said it was early 90s that you were doing a lot of the dancing um did that did that kind of fall away because you got into djing or or was there a different catalyst uh yeah i went away to school and then realized that i had a master a massive record collection and started doing parties and i had cds cassette tapes and vinyl and i was djing with all three of those mediums uh depending on the 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 college bar or house party that i was playing so like you know if i played a uh, a frat party or someone's house party i'd bring my turntables but i'd also bring my cassette tape or a cd player or a portable cd player just because i didn't have four hours of music um and all, you know all the variety that they they would have wanted in the midwest so yeah it's, it's kind of the same as taking your taking your records now, but also taking Serato, so you've got digital. Yeah, yeah. But it was probably just a lot heavier. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had Case Logics for, for days that, you know, I was able to flip through. And, and, and the same way you mark records now, or have always marked records that, you know, I had like, if it was like a Tribe Called Quest CD, I'd say, you know, a song 269, two, and I had them all marked on all my, all my CDs. So it's so actually a, interesting thing to look back at now because i had like a cd dj collection yeah well, you remember when the singles came out on cd and it was like oh now i got four versions of baby got back <laughs> so you know uh it, it like it filled up my cases with just like a bunch of singles um so that you could flip through them real real fast so yeah did you go to college locally then no i went in ohio in youngstown ohio how was that uh complete um cultural shift um (laughs) i was like you know kid coming from the west coast into the midwest and um the music everything like you know i'm riding low rider bikes to my college and that's not even a thing you know and so you know i'm I'm driving even just even driving a volkswagen in the midwest is is kind of an odd thing um so yeah it was a it, it was a big culture clash for me personally did you kind of stand out then, would you say? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was probably like five Asian people in my entire college. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it was definitely something that I had to ease into. But then I took that as sort of an opportunity of like, hey, I, 
I'm about to expose you guys to all this music. And, you know, I helped start the black student uh, uh, organization on campus just so that I could DJ. And I had them start dominoes tournaments just so I could DJ. Um, you know, I was doing anything I could in the park or house parties or just anywhere where I could tap in and, and ju just to be playing music. So that's awesome. So, um, what were the frat parties like? I'm a little bit basic, basically based on what I've seen on telly. I'm really curious about DJing frat parties and you know, they always look absolutely mental on films. Yeah. Uh, I, I did the black frat parties, so a little bit different than what you would see on TV, and, and, and they all wanted to hear Trans Europe Express 10 times. Really? In the 90s? Yeah, it was a, a huge, and it probably still is today, a huge stepping song. And so that one song would basically uh, set off the party every single time. Right. And then that just gave me the energy you know then it's just there to james brown to and you didn't you, you didn't have to play you know at the time that would have been like you know naughty by nature opp type stuff to, to to have party jams you literally could have stayed in this like real eclectic lane just because the dancing was so different it was step dancing right i've not heard of step dancing yeah i mean you go check out some some videos later on youtube it's like it's pretty amazing that song little i i had to go and find uh uh the trans europe express for for you know a period of time i was playing bombada um but they didn't want bombada they wanted the craft work version because it had a, a slower tempo yeah it's got that and there was full routines just on that intro to just get everyone in the mindset and that's how those house parties were so they were like black fraternity house parties that, uh, you know, I'm carrying in home speakers, not full PA, plugging into their speakers in, in different rooms. And, you know, it was a lot of fun, man. So you kind of bootstrapped your own career then, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went from that to realizing that like I could own a PA too and rent out a PA. And so then I just started it going into you know wooden nickel classifieds and anything just looking for old disco djs stuff and then of course then i came on record collections and everything else and so i was just a, a compiling uh speakers uh when i was in college so that you know when i if anyone wanted to have a gig i just had this i had the, the whole sound system where did you store it all um i i mean you know uh, uh, rent out there is $110 a month, All right. big three bedroom apartment. Uh, you know, we had, we had storage for days. Yeah. Everything's big out there. You got, everyone's got a yard and, and a lot of space. What was it like getting collections when you were out in the Midwest? Were you, were you still able to get good collections? Did you get any that were like unbelievably good for the money or anything like that? Oh yeah, man. I came across a bunch of soul, uh, soul and funk collections. I got two massive disco collections from uh, DJs that were probably at one point in time, I don't think they were ever club DJs. I think they were all radio DJs, but just pristine records, full catalogs, top down. And then uh, when I was buying hip hop, uh, I was just buying it through uh, Fat Beats. And then if I bought anything import, I always uh, um, got the stuff over... Um, uh, in the UK and, and, you know, just waited a couple of weeks for it to, to get across the pond. Yeah. I don't know how many more of these stories I can hear about people getting amazing collections for very little because I've never, never had that sort of look. <laughs> I've, I've had a few good things, but 
never like landed a full collection that's got loads and loads of really good stuff in it. Um, so you come to the end of college then, and what's the next step for you? Is it moving? Is that when you move to Seattle? Yeah, then I I, I got a, a U-Haul um, um, and loaded it up and went to Seattle. And while I was in Ohio too, uh, too I had also amassed a large collection of um, uh, thrift stuff. Like I, I probably had about 200 sweatsuits, vintage sweatsuits, 400 pairs of, uh, you know, red line jeans. I, I just had, I was buying everything that I thought uh, the Japanese were, would be interested in. And so when I came to Seattle, I didn't work for like almost two years. I just sold vintage uh, clothes um, and, and couch surfed at my sister's house. So, so was, so were you selling vintage? Was it, were you selling online at that time? No, no. I mean, eBay probably was around 90, uh, 94, 94, 95, but I was selling to, uh, resellers in Seattle. Some of them that were right. direct to Japan and then some that were just, you know, just in my neighborhood. And so I, I'd come in, I'd look at their store, see what they had and anything. It's almost like a record store. You see what's on the shelf, uh, above the stuff that's in the bins. And I would see, and I'm like, oh, they collect Lucite purses. Well, I've got 30 of those purses. Oh, these guys have vintage radios. I'm going to go and see if they want any of my radios. And I just had just tons of stuff that I had amassed over about a four-year period in Ohio at thrift stores that I paid peanuts for. So when you were buying the stuff at the thrift stores, were you were you buying it thinking, I can sell this on at some point at a profit, or were you just buying it because it was cool stuff? Uh, cool stuff. And then, you know, I had come out to Seattle to visit my sister and saw what was being sold at the thrift stores and said, there's so much of that in the Midwest. And so then I went back and just picked all the spots and it was pre-internet. So everything was there and everything was cheap and available. And, you know, I could go into a, um, a, a Jewish church sale that I knew happened annually and buy every single jacket on the rack for a buck, a jacket. And there were, you know, and then I could come back to Seattle and sell those for like sixteen, eighty dollars a coat. So, do you do you think that that kind of skill, intuition, whatever you want to call it, do you think any of that comes from when you were moving around? You'd go somewhere new, and you'd have to kind of assess the culture of of this new place, and and you'd have an eye on, oh, people around here are into this thing, or into this thing. You know, if you think about how you went to the Midwest and you were able to dial into the right things to get yourself to where you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, I never really thought of it, um, but that is very, very interesting because I was always trying to figure out where I get this um, like thing of like collecting. I always wanted to have something to barter with or to get, you know, uh, accepted into that in, into that culture or that, that thing. And so I like, I did, you know, reflecting back now, I, I did identify stuff and then try to figure out how do I get involved in that and how can i come with my own my own piece uh to to add to that so yeah i mean i only brought the collecting thing up because it's been sort of in my dna of like my records and cataloging and 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 figuring out what might be hitting before it hits and i've done that through a whole bunch of different other means so yeah and and the collecting has led to the to to the dj the collecting's led to a lot of different things yeah yeah open different doors and and giving you different paths to go down so when you moved to seattle then were you 
were you straight away like right i need to get dj in or were you focused more on the selling no I, uh, the selling was just to uh, make sure that i wasn't um you know uh just sitting around doing nothing and 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 adding to sort of you know living with my sister but yeah no i went straight straight into djing um at the time i was very focused on uh you know 94 so the 96 hip-hop hadn't really happened yet um so i was really focused on drum and bass so when you say 96 hip-hop what sort of things are you referring to i just feel like uh, the independent era like back, like backpack like raucous and things like that yeah yeah so like um i mean the raucous stuff was is is kind of a little bit still uh highbrow independent to me like i, I was into that stuff but I, I hadn't leaned in fully until it was like you know uh company flow socrates you know j live where, where it was just i felt like every album uh, wasn't a record label that i wasn't familiar with and so and, and you know you you could buy white labels and all this stuff and then it it had this attraction to me the same way that drum and bass has had where there's like VIP mixes or like, you know, dub plates. Like hip hop has never had um, a dub plate other than a white label or a promo. What's a VIP mix? A VIP mix is like you, uh, there's a song that's that's out. It's on the, it's, uh, it's being played by a lot of the DJs, but then uh, the producer of that track will only give the VIP mix to maybe eight select people. And so if you think about that, if you're one of those eight people and then you're playing um, you're playing uh, uh, in, a, in a club in London on the weekend, they uh, have familiarity with the tune that's, that's coming in or that's starting to play, but you have one of eight co copies of a distinct mix. And to me, I always thought that that's what keeps you relevant as a DJ is being able mm. to have access and curate songs and things that no one else has. So, I mean, in my early days of record uh, buying, anytime I saw Audio 2, I bought the copies, whether I had five at home or, or, or not, because I didn't want someone else to have access to that 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 song. <laughs> in the break. And so, I, I like in my head, I was like blocking DJs of like, you know, I don't want, you know, I play this and that song cracks every time I play it. And if I see it in any bin in any used record store, I grab it because I just didn't want them to have it. <laughs> and it was built from this like thing of like, you know, like, why are you coming to see me other than, you know, maybe my musicality is good, but I also have access to music that you don't. And then I think when all that got democratized with MP3s and everything, then I also lost a lot of interest. Yeah. Were you, um, were you covering the labels as well on records? Everything. I was doing all that crazy stuff. Yeah. And, and I loved it. I mean, I've got a bunch of records that I've completely smashed up with uh, a black um, uh, uh, pilot markers because, you know, I didn't want anyone like train spotting my tunes. And so I just would just mark mark out the thing till you couldn't even decipher what record it was. But I knew what it was from the, the, the colors that were bleeding through my marker. <laughs> I love this, like this furious competitiveness that people have. I think it's so fun. Yeah, and then you know it's like uh, in in you know uh, in old drum and bass days. Like if you think about what was coming over here, we would get four copies of of a big tune that was you know getting played across uh, across England, and um, it came out on the Tuesday, and so you had to develop a relationship with the buyer at the store, or they were very diplomatic and didn't do that, and they would just put them in the crate at two thirty in the afternoon or three the next week or four the next week and 
you just had to have been in exotic imports downtown Seattle when the record hit the thing, the bin, and 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 it was like you know there was ten drum and bass DJs in the city and only four copies of that tune, and so yeah, it just it created competitiveness just by the way the music was distributed. So how did you start getting your network for DJing in Seattle? Um, I uh, did, I think, what I, I hope even to this day a lot of um, uh, up-and-coming DJs uh, should and should be doing. Uh, some of them I see sort of walking in, in these lanes, but going to figure out where you like music and the crowd and the people and then actually investing the time to, to, to meet those people, even if you're not in their crew or in their circle of friends. And, and I, I leaned in, I, I worked security actually to get in to, uh, uh, into a click. And, um, I worked security at a place called, uh, vinylized in like 94, late 94. And they were starting a drum and bass night and I was checking IDs and doing pat downs at the door. And wanted, you know, I'm 10 feet from the turntables. I wanted to be on the turntables. I met those guys and said, hey, I, I play hip hop too. I could play the front room. I wanted to play the back room, but, you know, they had their crew established already. So I started in the front playing hip hop and breaks um, just so that I could lean into becoming friends with them and 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 then eventually joined them. And, and that was my drum and bass crew for, you know, a nice 10 year stretch. What was it like doing the doors of the drum and bass nights? Because I, I know there's times in England when drum and bass nights have been very heavy and very moody. I don't know the exact eras of it. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was. It definitely had a different temperature in um, in the states. I think um, it was a little bit more close, closer related to to rave culture, and so you did get still a lot of um, people that just like pure anything electronic and um and you know drama bass had a little bit more of an edge to it and you could tell from the people that were that were leaning into it that they were a lot different than the, than you know pure ravers or whatever and so uh this was an all ages club and so i think until it uh you know graduated to a 21 and over crowd it definitely was a funner younger like vibier crowd we didn't really have too much too much issues at all so how come we became over 21 was that to do with liquor licensing yeah it basically we all grew up too and so we all just said you know do we want to continue doing all ages stuff like yeah we could support that you know via underground parties but the 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 other thing was we wanted it to grow up with us we wanted that music to come to be a little bit more mainstream um and the only way to do that was to plug it into a weekday night and then build off of it so were you doing any promoting at that point? Big time. I mean, that was, I mean, that's a catalyst of sort of um, seeding any of this stuff in, in any city too. I think the, the other thing too is like a lot of people nowadays don't understand a lot of those uh, origin stories where you just show up and, and plug in your computer now and DJ, where before, if you were going to be playing a party, you were, you know, going hand to hand with flyers or putting them in car windows weeks out um, to, to get people. And so if you were a DJ, then you had to bring a, your crew of people anywhere you were playing, where now it's pretty much a little bit more passive. And, you, oh, yeah, I got a flyer. Let me just share the flyer on social and and hope people show up. But, I mean, you literally had to show up with your crew. Um, and that 
helped establish a little bit more, um, you know, respect that like, Hey, I, I know I not only could play this music really well, um, I'm helping build this party up. Yeah. So did you ever go into any new venues to set up new nights then? No, we did it all the time. I mean, we were playing in, in sushi restaurants, uh, Cuban, Cuban restaurants, turning them into clubs, uh, piano bars into clubs, it, just anything, anything in, in, in everywhere where we had a contact or, uh, you know, coffee shops, uh, you know, we, we've got a, a coffee shop that is still close to my office. And every time I walk by it, I'm like, I used to play there on a Thursday night upstairs in the smoking section, uh, for two hours for a couple free cups of coffee. And then, you know, the secondhand stores that I had the relationships with, I'm like, can I come in here on a Saturday and play some music? And they're like, I don't even know how that's going to work. Don't worry. I have the PA. I'll bring all the stuff in. And so we created that sort of in-store experience, uh, which then became like, oh, I love this. What do you play anywhere in town? Here's our flyers. And so that was like an in-store promo from hip hop. Probably we leaned on it to, to make, create that into sort of a club thing, a club promo. Right. So you were going to places for free, basically. Because yeah. you knew that you would get that promotion from it and that potential footfall into your nights. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for DJing free at the right times. Uh -huh. um, definitely not all the time because sometimes someone's getting a load of money out of you. But there's certainly the times when you know that it forms part of a wider end game and it can, and it can really help you. There's loads of gigs I've done for free and my mum's my said, oh, you're getting paid for this one. Well, and didn't... Well seem to have the kind of vision because they think well you're giving up your time for nothing and it's like that's nothing for nothing because it's going to come back and pay me back eventually yeah you know with your network with with me it's helped with all sorts of things with my job for example without getting into any details it's like help me set up a lot of my creative network that i work with things like that it's got me working so you know it's, it's done good things way outside of djing yeah, and I think I think the 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 area where you it it's not you know I don't I don't I don't tell anyone to work for free ever I think you know your your creativity and everything has got so much like face value on it but when you're involved in that building process it's different right yeah and so like if you really want a club night to go or and then a lot of times uh, if someone would come in and I I feel like it might be uh, a request coming in where it's a favor. Um, before they even get uncomfortable uh, asking for free service, if I like them and I want to like, you know, lean into their project, I just let them know, hey, uh, this pro bono, don't even worry about it. And then you could see that, like, you could see their energy going, oh, that, that was literally my next question, but you just helped me get through that. And so, like, I think as creatives, like, you'll know where you could be network building and where someone's taking advantage of you. Um, yeah. And, and that's a big thing that I've always, I've learned that because I've been on both sides, right? I've, I've been the promoter that's trying to get a night kick, a night kicked off and I can't pay everyone what they are worth at the time. And, you know, sir, you know, having a lot of those people around you that understand that is so important when you are basically getting started. And this is maybe another thing where you've been able to, you said about having that skill about kind of bartering with people well it's almost like communication as well isn't it you you can understand the benefits for other people of things that maybe helped you in terms of getting people on your team squad whatever you want to call it that will will take that step with you and say okay yeah we'll do this because it's part of part of 
Brian's vision, you know, we buy into this and we know there's a benefit for us long-term as well. Yeah. I mean, I still have a lot of the same friends when I w when I moved here in 94, um, on the community side, like I ran into two or three different B-boy crews. Um, and we've done the clubs, the club nights together, jams. Uh, you know, I did, I did an event when I first moved to Seattle, a B-boy event. And I had, of course, right. I had my sound system. So let's take it to the Seattle center, do a B-boy jam. And I brought in, uh, all the, uh, DJs at the time that I saw on flyers. And, you know, it was, it was a community oriented, um, event to like, you know, B-boying had, had, uh, gotten a resurgence, uh, in that time period. And then in it, and it the energy felt so good because it was like these kids were 15, 16 years old and they were into b-boy culture. And I was like, wow, that is something that I've missed for 12, 15 years at the time. And so I invested my energy into like, Hey, I'm going to go and play with them at the community center, offer my DJ services up for free. Uh, because I just loved that there was another sort of cultural movement that was very similar to my childhood. And, you know, it happens probably all the time, right? But it, it, there was literally a pin. I felt like right now at this time, B-boy culture is going to come back the same way that like turntablism like died for, you know, eight, 10 years. And then you were like, I hope all those guys that were in that culture are still okay. And some of them sprouted back up and did club gigs. And some of them couldn't figure out how to, you know, like, like party rock and, and were very, very drilled down into just you know, scratching and being a turntablist. And so that's another movement that I've followed, uh, you know, all the ups and downs of too. So it sounds like you were DJing a lot then. Yeah. I, I, I feel like it was, uh, totally full, full on consuming me. I was, you know, weekday, weekday gigs take its toll on you, you know, and these were weeklies and then weekend parties. And then we were going through, we were doing a lot of raves and underground stuff and, and, and in the States, it wasn't um, too crazy to have Farside playing next to a drum and bass DJ, right? Or you know, and and uh, you know, Qbert or someone like you know uh, on on the ticket. And so there was like a, that was really cool to me because it was like, oh, this is not at a normal club. This is an underground event, um, and I'm still getting to see some of my hip hop stars and also playing uh, drum and bass. And you know, it got to the point where a lot of those parties were leaning it so this is back to your point of like was it a was it a rough scene or whatever we didn't get booked for a lot of underground events because i think they were trying to keep it um uh very you know techno trance uh house party vibes and the drum and bass had you know the camo netting and we you know we we're all we we're all a little bit rough, rough and tethered and um so we would just go in to parties with our record cases and walk up to whoever was DJing and telling them that we were next and just knocking people off their sets. <laughs> and we did it over and over again through, you know, through a couple of years until they gave us our room and asked us to stop doing that, you know, and, and then <laughs> we had the drum and bass arena in the room and, 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 and then they started booking us and everything. And so we would literally, if it was a breakbeat DJ, we're like, that's kind of adjacent close enough to our music. And we'd be like, Hey bro, uh, I'm on in like five minutes and, and, you know, I can't believe you got away with that <laughs> over and over and over again, but we bring our whole crew. Yeah. So there wasn't like, oh, you know, there wasn't an argument or anything. It was just like, oh, I must've been misinformed 
these guys are up next. And then we would just all, you know, back to back our records until we got kicked off. <laughs> so just going back to college, what did you study at college? Uh, chemistry. Right. Okay. Yeah. So did you at any point do anything with that afterwards? Cause I know you said you didn't work for the first two years yeah. in Seattle. Yeah, I had uh, I had a job at a biotech lab working third shift, uh, maybe for about a four or six month stint. And um, a guy that I worked with, uh, uh, Norman Clark, uh, we became friends over music. We we're just uh, in a in a clean room environment where you couldn't touch your face for your entire work shift. Um, and we would listen to Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter cassette tapes and Miles Davis cassette tapes and just auto reverse them at at the end, and then have to go back through the clean room um, uh, schedule to, 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 to have the room sanitized again just to flip the cassette tape. Um, but we became friends and quit on the same night and made a pact that if either of us got a better job that we would hire the other person. And so he got a job at a, um, at a tech company that was like an online dating company at the time. And um, I was working at Home Depot and he, he just said, hey man, I'm, I'm literally the, the manager here. You could come in and just work with me. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm winning the ping pong tournament here. Like, I'm, I'm good, but call me back in a couple months. <laughs> then you know, fast forward, um, he hired me and that was uh, April 21st, 1996. Um, and then I was in tech from that point on. Right. What what was the tech scene like then? Because that's that's just before the bubble, is it? It's way the before. First it's, it's pre-Google. I mean, it's like, you know, you there was yeah. seven search engines. It was like AltaVista, Lycos, Hotbot. Look smart, uh, Ash Jeeves, Yahoo. There was no Google, and so we. It was pretty, pretty wild. Um, uh, I would say I, I felt like there was like only a thousand businesses on the internet at the time. You couldn't um, add something to a shopping cart. It, you know, everything was like uh, authorized at the end of the day. And so when we would have transactions go through, I'd have to send a batch through at like five o'clock to get our credit card stuff, and everything was manual data entry to FileMaker Pro and we were using Eudora for our email. It's it just a whole different time period than what people in tech are used to today. Were you still DJing a lot when you- I was DJing and I was sleeping in my office uh, on a um, uh, in the middle of the week on a, on a Wednesday night, uh, going to DJ, getting done DJing at four in the morning and then having to be at the office uh, by 7.38. And so- in between my DJ sets, I'd go up to my office, which was right around the corner from my gig, and just sleep on the floor under, underneath my desk, and then come back down to finish my set at from two to three, and then go back home to sleep a couple hours. Was that all in secret, or did or did people not care? Then was it quite an e was it quite an easygoing industry to be in, or, or easy? Yeah, it was super easy. And I I mean, to the point where I would even sleep behind the DJ booth, and people would wake me up and 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 to to, to get on because it was every single week for for years. And so, you know, it's like, you could do that a couple times a month, but you just can't do it forever or you'll get caught up and, and, you know, it'll, it'll eat you up and spit you out. So I just made sure I still had the day job, the balance. Uh, I was renting my sound system out at different clubs. And so that was extra income to just buy records, to just keep on, you know, building, uh, uh, you know, building my collection and also just, uh, uh, staying staying in contact and in network with different club owners and and promoters. What sort of work were you doing at the tech company? Um, uh, internet marketing, say literally the same job I have today. 
Right. So were you, were you doing a lot? Was it more of like the creative and copywriting and things like that? Or was it more heavily analytical? A uh, little bit more analytical, which is w why that chemistry degree came into play. Like, yeah. You know, it's the chemistry degree to me at that point was almost like a business degree. Um, it was like, here's the, here's what's happened in your ad campaign. Now go figure out why it was successful or why, why it didn't work. And I had to, had to go through the numbers. Was it quite nice having the opposition of, um, a very kind of creative role in the DJ in, and then having a very analytical role in the day job? Was it like nice to be able to just fully engage one and then fully engage the other? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I looked at them as one and the same because, uh, everything was so new back then that you just had to figure things out. Right. And so if you didn't know how something worked, you, you literally, you couldn't go to YouTube or go to a web forum. I mean, there were web forums, but they weren't doing, you know, uh, helping you figure things out. Um, and so you just were like, okay, I can't, I can't get Google to see my website or I can't get Yahoo. What are they doing? And then you just went and tested and figure things out until, and then you're like, ah, that, so it was like cracking the algorithm before the algorithm. Yeah. That's like a lot of reverse engineering, isn't it? Yeah. And then, I mean, look, we had to do it all through all through the years of, of Friendster and MySpace and figuring out how, like, how, okay, now how do we promote and how do we get people to do this? And, and, you, and I feel like a lot of hip hop is like cracking the code, like trying to unpack things and and repackage them and and figure out like okay now this is the new way of doing a promo and this is a new way of getting people to your event i think even in terms of production as well mm -hmm. you think about people that are sampling now say like an alchemist or, or whoever they're still sampling in the way say i don't know large professor was sampling when he did his first album but whilst they're still using the same technology and things, there's very different ways they're engineered and ways they're packaged. It's like you kind of reinterpret something with a slightly different twist on it. Yeah. I mean, we've got a lot of uh, uh, producers here in town. We've got Jake One, Vitamin D, Bean One. All these guys are here in Seattle doing a lot of old school uh, production. They're still using ASR 10s and MPCs and and um you know another uh, you know analog keyboards to do to make the music the same but i think the 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 part where it evolved was they realized that like the sampling obviously is uh you know with who sampled and all these websites and everything everyone's been called out on 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 things that they've uh, uh flipped or samples that they flipped they're going in and uh doing their own live recordings selling their own beat packs uh selling their own drum kits and so they're they've hacked the system it's a very hip-hop thing to do right and and they're like okay well we could keep on clearing samples and doing all the stuff that we've done traditionally but we also could just get all the stuff live drummed and then we own it yeah and so um so i mean i i don't know a lot in the production side but i just love watching the the evolution and you know i'm because i'm a, an old school head I also like seeing stuff come back around and the cycles returning to like, and I feel like that's happening right now with a lot of music production is that the, the, a little bit of boom bap is coming back into uh, a lot of production. And I just love seeing that, that it's like, it's like, go ahead and evolve music. We want to see that, but also uh, bring some stuff back so that 
uh, people could realize that like, oh, this, there was, there was something before we got into like everything sounding the same. Yeah. I think you get plenty of people that think hip hop was born and died in 1988 yeah. or earlier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they, they just won't even look forward. But if you look forward enough, you know, you, you can find a bit of what you loved about the 1988 stuff in the stuff oh. that you might listen to now. Because yeah, it's, it's the same for me. I, I like things where they've where they hark back to boom bap, but just just do it a bit differently. Uh-huh. Um, but I think even even like lyrically, things evolve, don't they? So you might have boom bap style and boom bap delivery, but there's just something a bit different, just a, a slightly modern take on the lyricism as well. Yeah, I mean the the cadences now. It's like. Uh, they could walk around beats and and talk through stuff that we would have never tried to pull off back in the day. And uh, actually, I like it. You know, it's like it's kind of amazing that you, you, someone could take something that I I feel has been flipped so many times already and still have something new. Yeah, you can't imagine Earl Sweatshirt or Action Bronson being around in '88. No, how that would have been taken in. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So when you were working in that tech role, um, were you staying in the same position or were you going up the career ladder? Yeah, yeah, no, I was going up the career ladder. I think at the time I had a, uh, a digital marketing manager role and then a VP of online marketing at, at Udate. And then um, I was going out to England one week out of the month for a couple of years and taking the trip up to Derby um, and really... Exp- you know, getting exposed to a lot of uh, early UK hip hop, or what I probably thought was early UK hip hop, and I was just buying any, any, and every record I could get my hands on that was UK hip hop, um, because it felt like drum and bass at the time was going down. You know, the, the that scene w- took a little dip with uh, uh. with garage and a bunch of other and, and grime movement, and a lot of those producers were going left and right and um and i had also at at the time had leaned out of the scene and then when i heard uk hip-hop it was very reminiscent what we were just talking about of like an older sound that i missed you know this 96 hip-hop really dirty samples and and grimy and not too cleaned up and too polished and i just missed that sound and i feel like uh you know all that early british hip-hop with task force and 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 all those crews really really uh got me got me uh perked up and interested so i was buying buying records on suspect packages i, I had i literally had a package come to my house every every other week <laughs> yeah i think there was a lot of it with that era there was a lot of dj premier and diamond d influence a lot yeah um so because i was gonna i was gonna ask you if if like the building the career like what sort of impact it had on your djing did you still dj as much in that time no i didn't really come back i was doing more promoting actually right yeah i i I turned a little bit more into community building like there was like a gap um a cultural gap of like this nothing's really happening in the clubs uh, we were in between the, you know, 21 and over in all ages time period. So now fast forward to like 2005, 
And uh, we were like going to clubs and still supporting other DJs that had those gigs. But we were like, I, I just need something to to you know get reinvigorated. And I fe- I think it was you know basically the Mob Deep MOP era music and and early Jay Z stuff that just like I was like, oh, let's let's get this back in the club now because that was dance music. Yeah, for a you know period of time, it was like people were going pretty pretty bonkers for uh for that music in the club which was super exciting to me because it wasn't you know uh it wasn't corny so you're playing a lot of neptunes then as well uh neptunes uh you know hit pretty uh pretty hard uh maybe two to three years after that for us like you know right that then it uh you know then you could call it jiggy era or whatever that it where things got a little more bouncy and then yeah it was a little less boom bap and a little more bouncy and then then it was it was okay because then we just saw music going you know going up and down um, uh, and and as long as it still felt um, threaded in like you know what we would call you know core hip hop um, then I was okay with being back in the club again. Yeah. So I suppose doing more of the promoting does that kind of sit in with the day job a bit more as well. Yeah, I mean, I was traveling a lot, obviously, and um, the you know by then we you know we had a, a huge network here locally, and so uh, I think collectively a lot of people all um, wanting everything in Seattle to be fresh, and so there was a lot of good DJs coming out. Um, there was a lot of old school DJs that had continued just holding down the scene even during the lull uh, periods, and so. Yeah, I think that that was that was a, a time period that like you could be a promoter or DJ anything, and you were all kind of doing everything in line with each other instead of competitively. Yeah, that's that's really nice because I think a lot of times that people won't quite have that altruism and and that true um, pa- passion to build something for everyone. <laughs> it's it's hard, I think. It's maybe quite a unique thing that you found there than people that wanted to build for each other, not just for themselves. Yeah, I mean, a lot of collaborations. I mean, this is, remember this time period around maybe 08, um, brands wanted to align themselves with club culture, um, liquor companies and uh, energy drink companies, and just everyone was coming around Nike and uh, Scion car companies. Everyone was trying to align themselves somehow. And they had to go to where there was audience mass. And a lot of times those are club nights um, where you're just like, you've got, oh, we're going to do a release at this club night. We're bringing in, uh, we got a sponsor to pay for, um, you know, DJ Shortcut to come up and and play our club night. And uh, all those collaborations really re-helped build that community piece. And the, you know, the, the decades of people being promoters then you had that trust built into the system too. Like you remember the time where there was just overnight promoters and they would just show up and disappear as fast as they came. Um, <laughs> and, and we got rid of them all, right? A lot of them were there for the wrong reasons. And I think that in Seattle, you we saw, we could count the promoters that we trusted on one hand. Um, and then those are the people that you aligned yourself with and and in the clubs that they belong to um, had more longevity same thing right like man that was a, such a fun club night but they had no control over the crowd or they had no control over whatever it was 
or they had bad security or bad staff or whatever, and they would die. And so then when those club nights died, a, a movement died at the same time. And so we learned so much from so many of those mistakes that we said, in, in order for this thing to keep going, we have to make sure the right players are in place. Um, the right DJs are on those rosters um, so that the music stays consistent, that people know what to expect when they're showing up. So, When you're getting all these um, corporate sponsorships then and that sort of thing, was that an opportunity to get a nice bit of money in for the guys that had been there throughout everything? God, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It was literally that it, it it was a payback of like all those gigs that you had done for us for like two three hundred dollars when you should have been getting paid a thousand fifteen hundred uh those checks just got signed over as, as much as we possibly could because at the time i was a club owner in 08 and so i had my own my own club you know we were bringing through all of our favorite djs uh onboarding all of our favorite promoters and you know we we pulled over the club nights that that were you know really near and dear to a lot of people's hearts in seattle and brought them into our club we brought over drum and bass nights the yo sun uh uh, uh world famous saturday night uh with uh, uh dv1 and uh, four colors act and soul one and b mellow and just all these djs that were like you know early um uh early development djs that supported the scene in the community for years and years and then just made them the residents of a lot of those nights. Let's just rewind a minute there. Yeah. So you're working in tech, you're building your career, you're getting into like VP roles and you buy a nightclub. Yeah. So um, I remember there was like those companies were getting acquired. And so then right. Udate got acquired by the IAC, which was Match.com. I got, I got a paycheck there. I could have bought a house, condo, whatever I bought. Uh, I opened up a club with one of my partners, uh, um, and then I, we opened up a hip hop barbershop. We opened up a art gallery, and we opened up a uh, screen printing company. All the things that make the ecosystem run. <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, sold the barbershop to the barbers. We realized that we didn't have any business in the hair business. Uh, <laughs> we were probably selling more bootleg CDs than we were doing haircuts. Um, the, uh, the 2008 market crash messed up the art gallery, but you know, we had space invader, we had like all, all of our favorite artists, um, uh, there, uh, um, at, at the art gallery during that really cool time for a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the urban art movement stuff. And, um, and then we had the screen printing business, you know, same thing. We, we shouldn't have been in that business, but we got a lot of relationships out of that business. The, the barbershop seeded so many relationships that I still have to this day um, for a business that never paid a dividend um, was probably the most important business that I've ever touched just because of the network. Yeah. It's like the guy that I had on the first episode, why not from Miami? He worked in a print shop and he right. said he, he got a really good network from that because that was just in the days that people were just still printing out loads of flyers. Yeah. So here's interesting where these networks come from. Yeah. And I mean, we had our flyer guy too, that was in Portland. And, and I mean, you know, we talked to, I would probably talk to that, that guy more than anyone else, uh, industry wide. And he, you know, if he could, we were greyhounding flyers up, uh, he was printing them and we were picking them up uh, at the greyhound station 12 hours later, and then going from greyhound right to the clubs 
uh, for shows that happen in two days. This is the only way to get messaging out. So did you have someone on the Greyhound with the flyers then? Uh, we would literally have to go. We knew when the, the, the bus was coming up and um and as soon as it got to the uh you know got to the seattle station we would just go down there and say yeah um under the needle records we got flyers in and then oh yeah got your box right here and it would literally felt like they were hot off the press and then we would just shoot downtown and and all the promo teams would 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 grab flyer packs and then we just blast the city with them that's crazy so um is the club still going um I, I got a different club. That one um, got sunset maybe about f five, six years. It was, you know, our clubhouse. We, uh, I literally almost lived there. Um, but we we got hit with, uh, the city hit us with an opportunity to dance tax, um, which was like some weird tax that was created in the 80s for um, um, like jazzercise classes, to tax jazzercise <laughs> classes. And because... We had a capacity over 50 and had amplified sound and a dance floor that we had to pay a back tax that, that pretty much crushed us. And then they, they was, there was a nightclubs that where the people were getting uh, crushed with fires and then they uh, required, had a, a, a sprinkler system uh, requirement from the city that, that crushed us. And so it, it literally was just like one thing after the other that was a little bit more driven from city politics and economics and it was our our you know lack of pursuit to, to have that, that that club live on longer all this stuff that you're telling me i'm just thinking about having whether we're talking about the day job or everything else i'm always thinking about the fact that you had the other thing at the same time as that so having a club that, that the city are doing their best to shut down basically whilst having quite a high a senior sort of job in tech that must and going through tech boom and bust um and all the other challenges that must have been a pretty intense time for your mental health like stress management yeah and i think that i mean it's interesting you brought just brought that up like at the time i think the thing that helped us not identify or uh, even look at mental health was we just went on to the next thing right uh we just kept our mind busy to avoid the complexity of trying to address any kind of mental health. And so then I opened up another bar with my partner and uh, uh, invested in another club, invested in an ice cream store, uh, you know, just kept on moving and moving so that I didn't have to slow down enough to stop and go, wow, you know, like that's a lot that I just went through and, and I never processed any of that stuff. And so um, I think when COVID came around, man, I got smacked in the face. Like I, I've always been like, oh, I don't have any mental health issues. I'm good. I'm just a really happy person. But when I slowed down to zero, I was a, I was just a wreck. I was like, where's my people? Where's my network? Why, why am I sitting at home? I'm, you know, I'm in my studio right now that I built during COVID because I just needed to be able to connect with people. And yeah, you know, so I mean. That was that. I mean, you say that, but I it didn't have. There was nothing. Like, yes, I was busy. Those tech boom, those tech bus. People were getting laid off. All this stuff, but we just kept going. We just kept pushing through it, and that protected. That that somehow was a protective shell away from identifying. Like, actually, I've been compiling a lot of anger and and having a bunch of stuff that 
you know, during COVID, I, I went and got a therapist for my my anger management. Yeah, and I thought, wow, that get a therapist? Hey, you must be like a crazy person. But no, man, it's probably the best decision I've ever done. I often don't recognize stress until I, I kind of observe that I will have done a certain thing uh-huh. that makes me realize I must be stressed. Yeah, like there's certain things I'll focus on and blow out of all proportions that make me then realize, oh, I must be stressed, rather than me just being able to identify the feeling of being stressed. Probably from that old school mentality, if you think, right, I'm just going to internalize everything and, and like you say, divert attention elsewhere. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it is old school mentality. And we, we say that, you know, our generation and other generations just just dealt with it. But I think that that's just very topical surface level stuff. I don't think anyone dealt with it. It, it wasn't like we had tougher skin. I think we just didn't realize that there was something that could be done to get rid of it or to make it better or, you know, to identify like, oh, I, I've got all this packaged up bad energy and my release is X, Y, Z. And I've had that, you know, and I've always been like, oh, you know, like, don't mess with me. I'm, I have a, I, I used to literally describe myself as having a quick fuse and yeah. thought that was okay. And, 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 I, and I've external, externally said that, oh, but, you know, I've, I just got a quick fuse. And then it was like, oh, that's just me. I'm, that's how I'm wired. But it's not how I'm wired. Yeah. So just going back onto your timeline then. Yep. Did you start to miss DJing? Yeah, of course. Um, I think because all the, all the while I, I never stopped buying records. You know, I'm up to 7,000 plus records. I was just in New Orleans last week buying a bunch of records. I had records shipped here. I came home to records arriving and I and I supposedly retired DJing six months ago. So <laughs> yes, I missed DJing and I missed DJing then. And I think it's the thing that pulls me, it's the gravity that pulls me back into the scene. And I'm trying to always uh, unpack, again, using that word that like unpack, like where I could participate and be ben- you know, beneficial. You know, am I a mentor now? Should I start a music festival? Do I open up another club? Do I start DJing an all vinyl night? Like all these things run through my head every other day. So, do you not DJ at all now? Then I'm I'm DJing like um uh, I my retirement was I retired from club DJing to give myself right. uh, a mental break from having to play Bad Bunny five times in a night. <laughs> it it's um. It certainly takes its toll, doesn't it? Yeah. The late nights and like you say, dealing with a certain type of people, dealing with certain type of request, um, playing certain types of music, certain songs that you don't want. It's there's a certain type of person that can keep doing that uh-huh. as they get older, I think. Um something that we've not talked about then is is family life, because I believe you've got kids, haven't you? Yeah, I got an eight and a twelve right now, yeah. So what was the impact on everything, I guess, of having having the children? Because you, for someone who's not got kids to be having a busy day job and be DJing a lot and promoting, that's pretty full on. How, how does being a dad interrupt or change that? I think, um, I mean, it's nightlife, right? And so, or a lot of it is nightlife. Um, and I think I just had a, 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 been fortunate to have a great partner that understands sort of, you know, how I'm built, how I operate, how I move about. 
And that's been supportive through all my projects, whether they're good ideas or bad ideas. And, and she's just basically, um, uh, given me this, I would say an extended lifeline. You know, a lot of my friends, my age now, uh, aren't going out, haven't been going out to club. I just went out this last weekend. We both did. And, and I think that it, that's probably the most important part is just having a little balance. And I felt like maybe, um, you know, COVID aside in the, it, the last say 10 years, right. Cause my, my one daughter's 12 years old that I might've been, um, not making the right adjustments to be around my family more. And I think that like, I'm having that reflection now, right. Uh, uh, uh um, these days now that I'm retired and I'm out of uh, what I would just say, giving my, my liver up for nightlife. Um, and I can wake up, I'm a, a more responsible uh, my days are longer my weekends are longer i'm able to think about a lot more stuff because i'm not thinking about nightlife um and you know i still do the bookings um for the club and and i'm still trying to curate and get more female djs in the mix more uh, uh more diversity in the mix and i'm thinking about stuff like that now because i'm like also thinking about me as a as a youth where i was trying to tap into where i might not have had opportunities and so and i also still am a music curator even though i'm not there and so i go and listen to djs up and coming djs and i listen to what they're playing and try to figure out can i slot them in and and have someone mentor them or train them uh, uh to be able to take over these nights because if you lose that then the nights disappear and then the club disappears and then the scene disappears yeah. and so like i'm really uh, you know, I try not to be, but I know that I'm a gatekeeper at some certain point and it's just who, it's just who I am. Your heart's just so in it that you can tell from talking to you, yeah. like there's so much passion for it all. Yeah. And you know, I've been, I was like reflecting with my friend that I used to dance, that, that we used to be in the dance crew and he has a crazy memory, right? Because his memory was us early clubbing. And I could go and text him and I'm like, Manny, what was the name of the club that was in Morgan Hill that was, you know, it was more new wave and mod and, and they played hip hop too. And he just remembers every single detail thing because he, he was only clubbing for that like five year period. And it was, and it just, it's locked in, right? The memories are all locked in. And I've been clubbing from the mid eighties till last weekend and it's all a blur. <laughs> yeah. so it's hard for me to put, you know, like put a, a, a needle in a haystack. But, um, yeah, it's been just a, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, a, a, a basically the foundation of my, my well being and everything is, you know, just having this community around and, and like-minded people and the creativity that comes with it. And so, yeah, I miss it, but I'm still a part of it. And what's the day job? Are you still in tech? Still in tech, still doing the same job that I was doing in, in the mid nineties. Um, but, uh, I have my own agency. Uh, with partners and you know we're we're just buying advertising for a lot of big brands and some of our favorite companies you know we try to do the same thing align ourselves with companies that we like and so um, that's been a fun ride but you know I'm sure uh, I'll have a retirement here coming up in a, in a couple of years around that side of the business too um has your network from DJing crossed over with your networking business oh yeah yeah i mean i do um speaking of like promotions i i i also uh do a seattle interactive conference 
it's uh you know 10 12 years in now um and it's kind of like our version of a miniature south by southwest and of course you know uh my my thing it's like it's a tech conference with you know 100 plus uh speakers uh uh um over two day period talking about um creativity and and marketing and communications and pr but it always has to have an after party right and then <laughs> after the after party guess who i who i book <laughs> we've had you know maceo from de la soul we've had uh sir mix a lot on stage with us uh you know we we've literally tried to lean into as much cultural um stuff as possible you know we've had stephen powers come out from uh from new york we've had say adams uh the executive creative director for for Def Jam for, you know, over a decade, come out and, and and do speeches because again, it's like I feel like so much stuff is so digital and people don't have an origin story of like when things were analog. And so I tried to find those people and 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 I know they're they're as passionate about their trade as I am of mine. And so like I want them to tell their stories so that, you know, if you're developing uh, identity or logo or something for your own brand or your company, if you're not drawing stuff on napkins and and using analog tools anymore, I mean, I see you have a pencil in your hand. Um, they're like those things are really important to me because they're process things, and like everything has a process. You can't just jump to step nine and think that you're going to complete a project correctly. Uh, so with the advertising, this is probably just from my interest because of what I've done for jobs over time. Um, is media buying a lot different nowadays? Um, particularly since um, since Web two and, and with social and with like influencer advertising and things like that, has that changed the landscape a lot? Yeah, it has. And so, like, um, I, I was in New Orleans at a media buying conference, and it literally is like, where are we as an industry? What's on the horizon? Where are we sort of? Um, uh, doing takeaways and learning and leaning into. And I think one of the biggest things that, that I came away from that conference is that everyone's really excited and afraid of AI and machine learning and where that's going to go here. I mean, you know, will you even need to write copy anymore or can copy just be written for you based on the history of the last three years in your industry vertical, the copy that is being, you know, uh, collected and data mined on some server somewhere. And so, um, I think the the thing that we've, uh, the way that we've positioned a lot of what we do now is that we do modern search, modern social, like that, th those are like really key words for us now, because it's like, it used to be hands on keyboard, right? Having the, the right smart people that could, uh, take a look at data, analyze the data, make informed decisions on what to do with it moving forward. And now we've got computers that could do a lot of that thinking and processing for us. And so right now, today, we're leaning into the algorithm. We're letting the machines do the work that they finally are capable of doing. And we are focusing more on creativity. Like how can we put a creative bend to what and provide the machines uh, a better chance of winning, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you're selling a product online and, we, and the machine already knows that uh, user ABC uh, like uh, to purchase um, um, beanies on the internet, the machine learning is going to show them the ad and we don't need to do that job anymore. The job that we need to do is make sure that that beanies 
been presented with the right copy to that audience in the right time where it's relevant for them. That's really nice though, isn't it? If creative can be the real focus of... All of a sudden, it's come back to the top of the stack. And, and I'm excited about that, obviously, because we're all creatives, right? And like have everything used to be, we could turn the knobs better. And now it's creative, could help the machine learning do better. Yeah. So I think with your mentioning of AI and things like that and versus creative as well, this is maybe what what's going to mean that AI can't challenge music too much as well because it can't feel. It can't feel. Wow. You know, this is, uh, I haven't put a lot of thought on the music side other than my resistance around, I mean, I just, I just started using Spotify within uh-huh. the last six months. So I'm a very late adopter to technology that's trying to tell me what to do and what to listen to and how to, uh, uh, you know, you know, I, I don't need an algorithm, uh, doing music exploration for myself. I feel like I'm the one that's supposed to be doing, I'm supposed to be the algorithm so that people go, Oh, what's, uh, what's Brian listening to right now? Oh, I'd never heard of that tune. No, that's great. And then I curate from there right and and and, yeah. and it's a it, it's a it's literally a journey right we we're trying to take people through a journey um and and also feed them you know like I, I always tell djs now like you're not really doing your job unless you're looking up and seeing how people are reacting to your music like you can't be just playing the 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 song that's in blue because you played that song last time and it went over really well with the crowd so you literally got to be looking up in the room and feeding the different pockets of people. And, and when you see someone vibing off your music a lot, you gotta, you have to keep feeding them, not the whole night, but you gotta acknowledge them, point at them and then give them a a couple more tracks because that's the algorithm they're looking for. Right. They're like, oh man, this, I haven't heard music like this in so long. Boom. I got you. And then you move to the other side of the room and you do that. And then the, the, the night builds and you see it, you see people get out of their seats and and, and, and start doing the dance floor. And I think that's a, a lot of what's lost right now is kids are so pre-programmed into their DJ sets. Yeah, I think as well with what you mentioned about Spotify, I still like going and buying records. I DJ a little bit, not loads. But the thing for me about going to a record show, I don't often go, go to places that don't have secondhand stuff because uh-huh. I want to go through secondhand, reasonable secondhand selections because i'll just i'll find things i won't find through browsing on spotify or youtube or Uh discogs i'll see something go that looks interesting who's playing on it they're playing on it this looks like it might be yacht rock or this looks like it might be some interesting psych or whatever it is and and it gives you that different experience of discovering music and that's what i think can set you apart as well if you're not going to be the most current cutting edge sort of dj or selector then having some stuff that's different a unique selection can kind of set you apart yeah yeah i agree i fully agree i mean that's basically everything that i focus on is like trying to find something that uh not only is just new for just being new but that uh i feel like i discovered it even if it's already been discovered like wow i had no idea this existed and then I'm going to make sure I include it in my next two sets. 
Yeah. Just so other people could go, oh, that's a sample from that one song. That is so crazy. And just that little bit of recognition and then and then I'm off to the next thing. Yeah. And it could be really exciting as well. I'm mindful of time now because we could go go on talking for about another five hours, I think. And um, just as a last point then, what would be a key thing that you would advise someone either getting into DJing or a key a key lesson that it's taught you for life? Um I think that like more of a lesson for life is just to always be mindful of your um the experiences you're having along the way that like you can't always be looking only for the opportunities to open up but you also got to turn around and and help the person behind you and 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 you those come back in just massive dividends like you'll be really surprised when you start mapping your uh your network and where you've gotten opportunities it's also along the way it's the person that was behind you that that might have snuck up and got ahead of you and then because you opened that door for them at one point in time they're there to to open a door for you ahead of you and so i think that that's probably been my biggest life lesson is that the network is so important keep it keep it intact and 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 you know don't come in and and be a um, a culture a culture vulture whatever you want to call it but to just be there and show up authentically and and people will appreciate that and and you'll have a lot longer um life expectancy um whatever genre you're you're in wherever whatever wherever you're tapping in it's just just you know be mindful that there's there's a lot of people doing it and you could be competitive but don't be a dick don't be a dick yeah amazing where can people find you online brian um i uh my last name on most social media so rauschenbach um and my my dj name is nostalgia b if you're looking through the deeper parts of the webs um i'm starting to curate playlists um because you know again anti-algorithm as much as i my day job (laughs) but yeah adam i really appreciate uh uh, taking the time and and like you actually got me thinking about a couple things that i don't think i've thought about in a long time and some stuff that i probably need to think about so appreciate that brilliant yeah thanks very much for your time thanks for listening to the one to dj podcast if you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at podcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at podcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.